Balugs, warm up and be good, Tim Clear. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and each episode I'm going to be giving you the tools to make your fiction less horrible. Writing is hard. And if you don't find it hard, you can fuck off. I mean, I'm delighted for you, you utter bastard, but if you genuinely find it easy, then you can only be here to gloat. This is not a show for savantish geniuses. It's a show for the fraudulent, the undisciplined and the downhearted. It's a show for the dickheads and the shit munchers. It's a show best listened to while eating marshmallows and or crying. For me, writing is like trying to stick an entire Formula One scale X trick track up my anus piece by piece. There are days when it seems straightforward, even pleasurable. But for the most part, it feels like an excruciating Sisyphean toil made worse by the knowledge that my pain is self-inflicted. Why are you doing that? Say friends and relatives, watching as I struggle to insert a tricky section of chicane. And my answer's the same as any addict's. Because I have to, you idiots. Because I have to. I don't know where you're at in your writing life, and frankly, I don't care. If you write, or you want to write, or you just want to spectate on the bizarre cultural artefact that is storytelling, you're welcome here. Not literally here, of course. This is my house. What I'm saying is, you're welcome to stay where you are while I gently seep into your ears. But you might want to sit on the toilet as you listen, because some of this content will be so excellent, you may literally void your bowels with approval. Remember, it's not a dirty protest, it's a compliment. Hang around to the end and I'll give you details on how you can share your own work to get critiqued on the show. But I see no value in beating around the bush any longer. Let's look at a first page and see if we can find ways of making it better. This is The Bone Station by Ed. Garth was standing behind a mahogany desk that spanned nearly the width of the carriage, bare except for a pair of beeswax candles that dripped down ivory candlesticks, their light catching on the medallion that hung from the man's neck. All the other furniture and ornaments were gone. A bottle of home-brewed liquor, minister's oil, Marion called it, was already open, filling the air with fumes, and as I entered, Garth sloshed some of the pungent liquid into stoneware snifters. Here, he said, thrusting one of the drinks towards me, spilling as he did. Have a drink. Sorry I don't have anywhere for you to sit. Everything's been moved to the new hall. I took the drink. What do you want, minister? I said, knowing the answer. No time for pleasantries. Garth didn't look surprised. I didn't say anything, and he sighed. Well enough, he said. Your week's up, Amos. You asked for time, and time you've had. I need you to make your decision. You need me to stay, you mean. I want you to stay, said Garth. But stay or go, I need you to make a decision. It was still autumn when we arrived, and we're now well into spring. Every day we build more houses, yet people still come back to the train to sleep and eat. As long as it's here, they will never lose their dependency of it. Either drive it back yourself, or I'll send it away without you. It's not that simple, I said. I'm not going to do like a fancy schmancy reading every time I read it out. I don't want to do... I could have done it in a... I know that was quite a flat read, and I could have done it in a kind of dramatic Brian Blessed voice. I, I, I didn't bring the characters to life, but bear in mind... When people read a book, I don't, well, I don't know what you do, but I rarely do that in my head. I'm rarely giving them all kind of like, I want you to stay, said Garth, but stay or go. I need you to make a decision. It was still autumn when we arrived. We're now well into spring. Every day we build more houses, yet people still come back to the train to sleep and eat. As luck seeks, because I'm so good, I'm so dramatically talented, 
that I could make any piece sound wonderful and that wouldn't give us an accurate read so I'm not going to do that anyway on to the cuts so first sentence Garth was standing behind a mahogany desk that spanned nearly the width of the carriage, bare except for a pair of beeswax candles that dripped down ivory candlesticks, their light catching on the medallion that hung from the man's neck. Wow, what a mouthful. I don't have a problem with long, multi-clause sentences, but this one feels like trying to sing the national anthem while giving a blowjob, which is a tender, patriotic thing to do. But the different parts get in the way. Positives? You introduce a character with the first word, which orients the reader. Also, when you reach that that spanned nearly the width of the carriage, it's a nice surprise, right? That the desk is in a carriage, an office, on a train. It's odd without being horribly confusing. Your world has something different. We're engaged. But then the sentence keeps going. It continues for another 25 words. It keeps unspooling and getting worse like a handkerchief trick that becomes the magician's flaccid penis and then his own intestines. I'm not hating on complex prose. I love long sentences full of subordinate clauses with rich relationships to one another. Not terribly cool as statements of love go, but there you are. I, I love them with a sexy passion. Here's T.H. White writing in his book, the sword in the stone. Merlin here has transformed young Wart, who will grow up to be King Arthur, into a bird. A Merlin, Natch. And he's just carried him into the bit of the castle where all the hawks are kept. The rain had given place to a full August moonlight, so clear that you could see a woolly bear caterpillar 15 yards away out of doors as it climbed up the knobbly sandstone of the great keep and it took the wart only a few moments for his eyes to become accustomed to the diffused brightness inside the muse. Nice, right? That's a 59-word sentence, half as long again as your first sentence, but it doesn't feel like it. He uses the sentence to zoom in from these big, broad sweeps of August and moonlight right down to a tiny caterpillar to make the prose mirror the piercing gaze of a hawk. There's no reason why he shouldn't be aspiring to write sentences as good as those of T.H. White. He didn't have access to a special pool of extra brilliant words only he was allowed to use. By urging you towards shorter sentences, I don't mean to curtail your ambition. You're allowed to write long sentences. You can pull some lovely nuanced tone with that shit, but you have to know you're doing it. And you have to know why. White's sentence works because it describes a progression and he's precise and he handles the transition cleanly. Your opening sentence, Ed, hello by the way, is and does none of these things. Garth was standing behind a mahogany desk that spanned nearly the width of the carriage, bare except for a pair of beeswax candles. That makes it sound like Garth is naked except for a pair of beeswax candles, which is an arresting opening bid, right? But not what you were going for. The confusion comes because you've got three concrete nouns in that first clause. Garth, mahogany desk and carriage. And when we hit the adjectival clause afterwards, we've got to quickly intuit which one of these nouns it's modifying. From force of habit, most readers will pick the subject of a sentence, the noun at the beginning, the one that's doing something. From context, they may pick the noun at the end, the object, the thing, what's having something done to it. Stand down grammarians, I know, I know, it doesn't always work like that. Shh, I love you. This is one of the problems of writing colossal run-on sentences. The longer they get, the more parts exist in relation to other parts and the greater the scope for ambiguity. They're really hard not to balls up. And I just want to say, I do think those nouns, Garth, Mahogany, Desk and Carriage, are good nouns, right? They're specific, they're crunchy, they're interesting. You're not being vague. So that's good. It's just 
all the shit in between and their relationship to each other. So I'd split this into smaller sentences. Garth stood behind a mahogany desk that spanned nearly the width of the carriage. It was bare, except for a pair of beeswax candles. Now, I'm not fond of that spanned nearly the width of the as a grammatical cluster. It's ugly. So why not? Garth stood behind a mahogany desk almost as wide as the carriage. I'd be tempted to cut almost. It's a hedging word that dilutes your prose, but I accept it'd be impractical to have a desk that ran wall to wall, so maybe it's passable. But of course, that's not even the end of the sentence. Oh no, it goes on. Garth was standing behind a mahogany desk that spanned nearly the width of the carriage, bare except for a pair of beeswax candles that dripped down ivory candlesticks, their light catching on the medallion that hung from the man's neck. I mean, fuck. When I first read this, I assumed that the man mentioned at the end was a a second character Garth was looking at, but no, it's just Garth again. The sentence has gone on so long you're having to make up aliases for him to keep from repeating yourself. I appreciate the specificity, right? The mentions of mahogany and ivory give a sense of opulence. Mahogany is better than wooden. It has a tone. But you need to pick your battles, Ed. This is too much. Give us the single rich telling detail. The shuffling hairy caterpillar on the sandstone battlements. Which is what T.H. White called his penis. All the other furniture and ornaments were gone. Furniture and ornaments are the opposite of what I was just talking about. They're super vague nouns. You're just gesturing towards general concepts. Worse, you're asking us to imagine a negative. You're saying, you know, furniture and ornaments. Pictured those broad categories? Okay, there's none of either here. It's a cumbersome and unenlightening mental leap for the reader to make. Don't describe a negative. Give us the dusty floor with four clean ovals where the bronze feet of Garth's lacquered cabinet used to stand or the scuff marks left by the leather club chair that used to be on the opposite side of his desk. Give us the way the carriage echoes now all the soft furnishings have been removed. Give us tangibles. A bottle of home-brewed liquor, minister's oil as Marion called it, was already open, filling the air with fumes and as I entered Garth sloshed some of the pungent liquid into stoneware snifters. So, first of all, fuck Marion. She has no business being in this sentence. Introducing an extra name before you've even revealed that this is a first-person narrative, before you've introduced the main character, is just an irritating distraction. And I mean, yes... If her inclusion was startling or fascinating, if it had some powerful emotional tone or note of intrigue, I'd be absolutely behind a reference like this. It's good to mention things or people we don't yet know. It gives a sense that we're entering a world that has already existed before the story. But this is... It's just... Ed, it's just noise. My bigger problem with this sentence is that it implies the narrator is entering right now. That's where the narrative present is located, in which case... Where was he for all that description beforehand? Just standing in the doorway gawping? You want to establish a narrative present ASAP and you want to try and make your writing pace the ongoing reality, or, if it doesn't, to not do that consciously and consistently. Here, it sometimes does, it sometimes sort of seems not to, and we can't really tell. And fuzzy hinterlands, while they sound adorable and faintly erotic, are not where you want to be as a writer. Here, he said, thrusting one of the drinks towards me, spilling as he did. Spilling what? Do you mean he fell over? Is Garth a giant sentient lemonade jug? Note, you don't have to add, as he did. We understand how continuous subclauses work. 
Not only is it superfluous, it means the end of the sentence is given over to boring grammatical clutter rather than a strong verb or noun. Have a drink. Sorry I don't have anywhere for you to sit. Everything's been moved to the new hall. I did a bit of a voice there. Did you like it? So yeah, unremarkable but perfectly functional dialogue. Notice how that second sentence makes the earlier description of the absence of furniture unnecessary. Unnecessary. Everything's been moved to the new hall, right? That gives us the clue, right? I took the drink. Bloody good sentence, that, Ed. Clear, concise. Please understand this is not sarcasm. Simple, comprehensible sentences are all too rare. Don't turn your nose up at them. What do you want, Minister? I said, knowing the answer. Excellent. Strong, clear dialogue. Nice hint of a power dynamic with the use of a title. Simple dialogue tag, then an adverbial clause that subtly twists our understanding of what we've just read. My only problem with this is why does the narrator call him Garth in the narrative and minister to his face? It, it jars slightly. Wouldn't he first be introduced as Minister Garth or something? You don't want to be calling the same person Garth, the man, and minister over the course of a few sentences. It's confusing and it feels inconsistent. No time for pleasantries. Garth didn't look surprised. I didn't say anything. And he sighed. And then you know who else sighed? Me, Ed. I sighed. Because you fucking described a bunch of stuff that didn't happen again. Garth didn't look surprised. I didn't say anything. Any other stuff that didn't happen we ought to know about? You know, to eliminate from our inquiries? I didn't do an armpit fart. A small soapstone figurine of Barbara Cartland didn't emerge from an aperture in the minister's forehead singing the Internationale. Don't describe negatives. If you do, you will still be a wonderful person invested with worth and dignity, but your writing will be a turd-ridden disaster. Your week's up, Amos. You asked for time and time you've had. I need you to make your decision. This is all good dialogue. It's not super realistic, but dialogue doesn't have to be. It's clear and it contains tension. I'm on board. A story is beginning. Overall, this is not bad, Ed. You've got two characters, a power dynamic, a conflict. Your writing instincts in this scene are sound. But I want you to go back and focus on what each sentence is doing. The contribution each clause is making. And whether they're all pulling in the same direction. And that's it. That's the episode. It's early days, so I'm going to tit about with the format. I'd like to chat with other writers about their process, painfully conventional, though that is, and about books in general. And I'd, li- I'd, like, I'd like to speak to some editors and some agents. And I'd also like to speak to you, please. I can answer some of your questions if you send them. And, of course, I'm going to continue to do first pages. Perhaps I'll introduce a quiz show element or some freestyle jazz. Rich vistas await us. I've got two things I'd like you to do. Ready? Firstly, send me your first page or a question about writing or let me know what you thought of the show. If you disagreed with any of my thoughts on the piece we just looked at or there's something you think I missed, let me know too and maybe we can discuss that as well. You can find out how to submit on my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. That's timclairpoet.co.uk. If you go on that, there's a... There's a little uh, submission thing in the right-hand column. It just says contact me. If you click on that, you can uh, you can contact me through there. Obviously, that should be self-explanatory. It's not self-explanatory. It's, I mean, you'd have to find it. You didn't know it was there. So that element wasn't self-explanatory. It's partially self-explanatory. But more importantly, I'm going to pop a link in the show notes to the little submission guide 
what I've written, which will just tell you what I want. But basically, I'm looking for two, no more than 250 words of the first page of your novel or short story. It should be polished to a high shine. It should be the best. You can absolutely make it. I would love to read it. If you send it, I might use it on the show. I'm not going to be filtering for quality. I'm just going to be picking the first thing off the spike and using that. Okay, the second thing I'd like you to do if you've enjoyed the show is spread the word. I've just started, so in all probability, your reservations are many and grave. That's fine. Fingers crossed I'll get better. But, you know, the more people listen, the greater the likelihood this podcast will continue and thrive. So, in a sense, if the show turns out shit, the fault is yours. Thanks for listening, and until next time, if a vacuous chipper sign-off is what passes for inspiration in your life, you probably shouldn't be writing.